I'm not sure if it's on the screen, but we, we're talking about um, praying in tongues, and um, which is an interesting topic. And um, considering we were talking about prayer the first half uh, or the first part of this year, I thought I'd sort of round this series up by, by touching on praying in tongues, which I think is um, a really, really important thing. And so, firstly, I just want to say that, that I am unashamedly Pentecostal. Our church is unashamedly Pentecostal. We, um, we're all for it. Signs, wonders, bells, whistles, we're all about it. We love. However, I probably draw the line with flags and timbrels. Um, I just think that we all have to have boundaries, okay? But everything's good with boundaries. Fire is good, but it needs to be contained, I think, you know. So I, I draw the line there. Um, being Pentecostal has, has brought with it um, some of the most amazing moments of my spiritual life and also some of my most heavy criticism um, towards me. I've had other Christians say things to me like, oh, right, you're Pentecostal. So it's the whole Pentecost at any cost type of thing. I'm like, what do you mean by that? Oh, well, you will twist scripture in whatever way you want so that you can sort of justify your experience as a Pentecostal. I'm like, dear Lord, no. And, um, and, and then basically people have said things to me, to my face, that have made me feel like being a Pentecostal is somehow the poor man's theology or, or the dumb man's theology. And the more I have studied the Word of God, the more I've chased the things of God, the more I've experienced God himself, the more comfortable I am with being a Pentecostal. I love it. Um, in saying that, like, I'm, I'm an open-minded person. I love to think things through. And I think I've had to, over, over the 25 or so years, I have had faith and been in, of the Pentecostal persuasion. I've had to learn a bunch of things. And I've had to unlearn some things as well. But I think the whole process has helped me be a, a more well-rounded follower of Jesus with this particular proclivity to the Pentecostal persuasion. So um, we're going to talk about um, praying in tongues because praying in tongues is one of those key parts uh, and key theologies of Pentecostal prayer. So what is tongues? Now, I've got a lot of work to do this morning. This is not a, a little small topic. There's a lot of stuff to do. So I'm going to try and make it as interesting as possible. I'm going to try and, and, and sort of keep your attention if that's okay, because there's a lot of stuff to get through. But I want to acknowledge, first of all, that this is a tricky topic that can be polarizing in the broader body of Christ. And um, the reasons for that are that it is theologically complex is the first thing I would say. It's, um, there's a lot of nuance there. It's, it's certainly not a black and white issue. Um, it, it's open-handed. We can, we can discuss and debate it if, if you like, but, um, but we're not going to divide over this issue in the body of Christ. So it is theologically complex, and you'll see that this morning. It's um, probably the biggest thing it is, it's, it's culturally weird. Tell me I'm wrong. Like, if I was to pray in tongues right now, you'd be like, that's weird. I know it's weird because I hear me do it and I think it's weird. I hear you do it and it is weird. So let's just call it what it is. It is culturally weird. It doesn't make sense. It's just crazy. So that's like, but that's okay. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just it is what it is. It's bizarre. The third thing, it's, it's emotionally charged. And that's because for some people, if you've been in church for a long time, you might have grown up in a church that was very anti-tongues and things of the Spirit, and, and it was, you were told it was demonic and to be avoided, and so therefore anyone that you knew that was a Christian that spoke in tongues, you had this um, propensity to be repelled against because they were of demonic forces. Or conversely, maybe you were brought up in a church where you were told that unless you spoke in tongues, you weren't even saved. 
And so that was rammed down your throat as that was it's the normal thing, you have to speak in tongues. And, and, and I think both ends of those spectrums are very, very dangerous um, and, and actually can really, really hurt people. And so uh, I want to sort of unpack a more well-rounded view of tongues this morning. So three myths right off the bat. Myths about tongues. One, if you don't speak in tongues, you aren't filled with the Holy Spirit. Myth, false. I totally disagree with that. I believe you can be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and not speak in tongues. And we'll unpack that maybe you can, but it's a, you know, you're not filled with the Spirit. The second thing is, if you don't speak in tongues, you aren't saved. False, myth, wrong. I do not believe that is true. Some would preach that, some would teach that. I strongly, strongly um, resist that thought. And the third thing is, tongues are not for today. This comes from the, the cessationalist view, where the, the, uh, the gifts of the Spirit ceased with the apostles, that we now have the Bible which reveals God and all those wonderful stories. They needed the, the, the miracles back then to sort of prove that God was God because they didn't have the Bible. We now have that, so we don't have the, the gifts of the Spirit anymore. False, I disagree with that. I think the gifts of the Spirit are just in play now as they were back when Jesus was on the earth. So just want to debunk those three myths there. Um, a quick definition, a simple definition of tongues, I would say, is tongues is a form of prayer that, um, in Jesus' name, the stupid mic. Um, so, you can still hear me, right? Good. So, prayers, uh, in its simplest form, tongues is a form of prayer given by the Spirit for us to praise God in a language that's unknown to us. So, it's... Um, Hello? Hello? Oh, good. Welcome back. Um, a form of prayer given by the Spirit to give praise to God in a language we don't understand. That's basically what it is. In simple terms, you and I would know tongues as a gift of the Spirit. Now, if we read 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1, it says this. Paul says, Now about spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be ignorant. So there's all these spiritual gifts. Um, and... And Paul's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be blasé. I don't want you to sort of not think about it. I want you to pursue these things um, when it comes to spiritual gifts. So he gives us three lists, um, two lists in 1 Corinthians 12, one list in Romans chapter 12 um, of gifts. It's not exhaustive, but it, there's, there's a lot of different types of gifts that Paul um, is suggesting the Spirit gives. They're on the screen. You're probably not going to be able to read them because it's so small. And on my computer last night, it looked quite big, um, but now it's small. Um, but here's what they are. Words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, healings, miracle, prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, kinds of tongues, interpretations of tongues, uh, apostleship, prophets, teaching, miracles, healing, helps, administration, kinds of tongues. Again, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy. A lot of stuff there going on, right? Um, the interesting thing is, in the original Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, we don't see the phrase spiritual gifts like that. This is how King James sort of um, interpreted it when it was done uh, hundreds of years ago, and we sort of just kept with it because it's close enough. But with church culture the way we are, we've sort of... The meaning is true enough, spiritual gifts, but the way that the church culture has shifted, we've sort of... We're led to believe that it's something that it's kind of not. So what do I mean by that? Well, theologians um, say that better um, interpretations of this gifts of the Spirit in the Greek would be um, to use the words um, spiritual things 
or workings of the Spirit, or um, this is quite popular in contemporary times, manifestations of the Spirit. But my favourite is um, by a theologian called Gordon Fee, and he, he describes that the best way to interpret that would be stuff that the Spirit does. So those lists up there, that's stuff that the Spirit does. And you'll be going, cool, that's great. Why is that important to know the distinguish between spiritual gifts and stuff the Spirit does? Well, here's why I think it's important. Because if we just see it as spiritual gifts, the way that we have experienced it through church, what we do is we go, okay, I'm going to do a spiritual gift finder survey. And so I punch in all these things about me, and I'm all for these things, by the way, I think they're great. But then what ends up happening is we whittle down all these questions and go, bang, there's my gift. And we pigeonhole ourselves and we pigeonhole God as he can only move through that specific area of our life. And I go, hmm, I kind of think God is bigger than that. Um, I, I see this list really as not being um, a list of specific things that's going to pigeonhole God's move in our life and pigeonhole our ability to, to move through the things, with the things of the Spirit. I see this list really as all things being available to all believers as the Spirit wills. That, that you might, um, for example, have primarily a gift of administration. God's given you a gift to just to think clearly, to put systems and structure in place. That doesn't mean that you can't have a word of knowledge for somebody. That doesn't mean you can't prophesy and the Holy Spirit move through you in that area. I think absolutely. I think these, these things, these gifts are 100% available to 100% of believers as the Spirit wills, as He needs them to, through you at a specific time and place. That we aren't just pigeonholed into one thing. So, Paul encourages us to do two things. In 1 Corinthians 12, which we just read, um, he says, don't be ignorant about the stuff the Spirit does. And then two chapters later in verse, chapter 40, verse 1, he says, eagerly desire the stuff the Spirit does to be done in your life. So don't be ignorant about it and eagerly desire it to happen in your life. So that's the, that's the thing. That, so, so tongues is one of those things up there that the Spirit does through us. Let's unpack those things real quick. Um, so here we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, this is one of the main scriptures that people um, put out there for speaking in tongues. Um, the day of Pentecost, all the believers were in the room together, Holy Spirit fell, uh, and then as was seen, tongues of fire on their heads, and then all began to speak in tongues, right? We know that one, one of the most famous ones of all. Fast forward to Acts chapter 10, we see, so Holy Spirit falls, um, the, the people go out and start to plant churches, do all sorts of things. Peter's out preaching the gospel. In Acts chapter 10, he's preaching to a bunch of people. The Holy Spirit falls on them, and then they all begin to speak in tongues. It's amazing. We fast forward in church history just a few years, Saul's conversion to Paul, and then Paul starts to go out and preach the gospel, plant churches, build churches. He bumps into a couple of dudes along the way in Acts chapter 19, and says, um, these, these people are disciples. He goes, well, who are you baptizing? Oh, we're baptizing to John. And he's like, what? Not, not Jesus. No, no, not Jesus. Oh, let me baptize you in Jesus. Lays his hands on them. Holy Spirit falls on them in Acts chapter 19. They all begin to speak in tongues. It's incredible. Holy Spirit falls. They all speak in tongues. Now, you might go, well, that is a... a I can draw a logical conclusion now that whenever the Holy Spirit falls on someone or touches someone, that they all speak in tongues. 
Now, I've been around church long enough to know that that is not always the case. I know people that have been Christians for 20 plus years that desire to speak in tongues, but they, for whatever reason, they just don't. The Spirit hasn't willed them to yet. And so to build a whole theology and like a, 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 a prescriptive idea of tongues around those three passages is not ideal because in the scope of church history, according to Acts, which Acts is the, uh, the shortened version of the book. The, the whole book is called Acts of the Apostles. So in the whole um, 28 chapters of Acts, there's 22 different stories of when people encountered Jesus and came to follow him. They're the only three we see where they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. And like the list we saw before, tongues only mentioned a couple of times in that full list of there. Uh, there. So we can't say that one plus one equals two, Holy Spirit touches someone's life equals tongues 100% of the time. Not necessarily the case. I think it's important that we just uh, are well, we handle the scriptures well and think logically and rationally and scripturally about these issues so that we don't abuse them. So let's then explain tongues, right, when it happens. And this is where we're going to get right into the nitty gritty. Are you okay? All right, I'm trying to be engaging and stuff because it's, it's a long, long message. But we'll get there. We'll have coffee soon, promise. Okay. So 1 Corinthians 14. Um, so Corinthians is an interesting church. Corinthians is... Um, um, so the church of Corinth, was the, the city of Corinth, was a, was a bad city. It was like Las Vegas on steroids. Um, it was debauched, unholy, unrighteous, the culture of the city itself. Um, and so Paul writes this letter because he planted the church and continued on his missionary journey. And then he started to catch wind of um, the culture of the city permeating into the church. He's like, no, 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 no. So he writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, um, basically as like a, a dad rebuking his children because they've just gone nuts. They're just mental. And he's just going to correct a whole bunch of stuff because it's not working well. Like to the point where, so, so Corinth was so bad that they, they had a temple devoted to worshipping the Greek god Aphrodite, which was the goddess of sex and fertility. And in that temple, 1,000 prostitutes would service that temple. So men would come from their boats, fishing men, all sorts of people come in, and they would just party and carry on. They'd go up to worship this Aphrodite, and they would have their needs met at this temple. It was, it was wicked and horrible and fully debauched. And then that sort of culture was coming into the church. And if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it talks about, and this stuff's in the Bible, right? It talks about a guy in the church in Corinth who is sleeping with his mother and his stepmom. It's true. And so Paul's like, you guys are wacky to back it. We've got to sort out some stuff here. This is not on. This is not kosher. This is not cool. So this whole book of 1 Corinthians is, um, is, is Paul going, guys, we've got to get order back in this place because you guys are out of control. And so chapters 12, 13, and 14 are very interesting chapters in this letter because chapter 12 talks about, as we saw, all the lists of those gifts, all the different things that the Holy Spirit does. Then chapter 13 talks about love. Love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering. And then chapter 14 talks about having order and structure around a few of those gifts. In particular, we see tongues. In here, we see things, um, how he addresses women preaching in church. And, and a lot of people, they, they build a doctrine about that, that women can't speak in church because Paul, when he talked to Corinth, said, women should be silent in church. If they have questions, go home and ask your husband. Now, most women in the 21st century get really offended by that. And go, that is so sexist. The Bible is so wrong. It's so full of chauvinists. 
Yeah, if you take it out of context. Now, the context of that, I'm going on a side tangent, I'm sorry, but I just have to deal with this one. Um, the context with that is in, in first century tabernacle life, the men and women sat differently in different places. Men over here, women over there. Culturally, that's what they did. And, and because the church was so crazy, um, the, the, the gifts of the Spirit were just going nuts. People were prophesying over and over top of each other, praying in tongues really loudly and cutting each other off in tongues. And, and then the priest was trying to deliver the service at the weekly gathering and, and people couldn't hear what was going on. So the women over here are going, hey, 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 Rian, what is the priest saying? And he's trying to give an answer back. And then Mang's like, hey, uh, Karen's like, hey, Mang, what, what, what is Justin saying? And, and they couldn't hear what was going on because there was so much chaos in the church and they were, they were using the spiritual gifts God had gave them in a, in a spirit of chaos and disorder. And so Paul's like, stop, time out. Guys, we've got to get order in the church. Ladies, right, if you can't hear what's going on, hold your thoughts. Ask your husband at home because they're going to hear it. And guys, stop carrying on with this tongues and craziness and prophecy. Have a bit of order and do things decently in a good way so that the church can be edified and blessed. What it's not saying is women can't preach. Women need to shut up. Women have no place in the church. Women are subservient to their husband because they're, they're the number one top dog. It doesn't say that. He's addressing a specific issue at a specific time that if we don't understand that, we can draw these conclusions that, that suppress women and make them feel like they're inferior citizens, which is not the case. Because we're all equal in God's sight. And that's why I think it's important to have a healthy, balanced theology and not just get caught on these random tangents about things and realise when you look at Scripture in its entirety, it actually is for the fulfilment and flourishing of all humans, male, female, adult, child, Whatever. Because God is good and he's a loving, caring father that doesn't create division, he creates unity. And you're very, very quiet. <laughs> Ladies, do you have any questions? Ask your husband at home afterwards. <laughs> if you're wearing a head covering. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. Now, oh. I'm tempted to, because um, it's 11 o'clock, so we're an hour and a half in, of this service. I'm tempted just to press pause and unpack this next Sunday because I've got a lot here to go through what tongues is. Um, are we okay with that? Because um, I just think it's important. I don't want to rush through this because I'm going to talk about um, what, tongue, what tongues is, how to use tongues well, what the Bible actually says about tongues, its purpose, its function, its role. Um, and, and I will just say this, that in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 14, um, this is my little, I'll whet your appetite for next Sunday. But Paul says this. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul said that. So next week, we're going to unpack what that means.